Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today we're going to be talking about trail building with a very special guest, Mr. Walt Brady. Walt is a professional trail builder and trail educator. He's got his own trail building company called Be Ready Trails, and he's going to be sharing some of his knowledge with us. So thanks for joining us, Walt. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here in the Single Track Studios. Yeah, well, so... Let's get started talking about your background. So how did you get started building and advocating for mountain bike trails? Well, I got my first mountain bike in 1988, and I discovered this group called Sorba. I was riding up at Bull Mountain. I saw a sign about something called Nimblewheel Festival, and I was like, what was that? And uh, somebody said, oh, that was last weekend. (laughs) Okay. Uh, It was a sign from one of their group rides that was up on the trail, and uh Found out where the meetings were, went to one, went to another one, and was like, this is pretty cool. They were doing actually a uh, a trail work day at Gainesville State College. Well, it was that one next to college, that's where we met, but uh, it was at Chicopee Woods, and uh, they were building one of the first trails from the parking lot over there that what I recall was just kind of cutting a bunch of sticker bushes and clearing corridor for this trail that's uh, probably, uh, shoot... I'm going to have to say 95, 96, maybe time frame. Yeah. So, were, what drew you to that? Were you did you enjoy the trail building like early on, like that, or or was it more just a way to give back to mountain biking? I would say uh, kind of connected me with some of the stuff I had done as as a youth. I was a Boy Scout, uh, loved hiking, uh, and in fact, I got into mountain biking as a as another way to to get out in the woods and keep adventuring, keep exploring, and uh, met some interesting people. And I think it was just looked like a group having a good time. And, you know, I thought that that's what everybody did. (laughs) Yeah. Well, don't, yeah, I wish everybody did, right? Then we'd have a lot more trails and they'd be a lot better trails. Yeah. And I, I didn't really know much about the trail building, but there were people there that did and they you know, just explain what to do. And later there was a program that Sorba started for trail education that I thought, you know, that'd be a good thing to go to. And a fellow named Mike Ryder teaching a class on trail building and also crew leader training. So how do you find out about new and improved techniques in trail building? Was there any sort of like, you know, continuing education track for trail building? The only program I think in almost the entire country at the time was this thing called the Georgia Trail School that started around 2000. And Mike Ryder, actually Mike and Jan Ryder were the, were the instructors. He had previously been on the IMBA trail care crew for three years with his wife. Uh, so they knew what they were doing, had a lot of experience. And interestingly enough, that was about it other than you know, at the actual work days where you would have, you know, knowledgeable people who could explain what the work was and kind of demonstrate and, and help you, you know, to learn how to do it. Yeah. You also brought a couple of resources here with you. The, I guess the trail, Emba's trail building, trail solutions guide to building sweet single track seems like a really important resource that a lot of people use. And then another one that you brought is uh, the forest service actually has a trail construction and maintenance notebook. So how much of this can you learn from a book versus how much of it is, you know, kind of experience based? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think like any profession or, or thing you're, you're going to get into, you want some some good reference material. And I call the Trail Solutions book that Emba put out my textbook for classes I'm doing now. The Forest Service publication, which is available free to uh, some you know, to anyone, is a great complement to that because it's pocket size. You can carry it with you on the trail. You can pull it out at any point that you're like uh, not sure about how the particular thing is done. And uh, yeah, I reference these things all the time. People contact me and ask me a question and I usually turn to a certain page in the book and say, uh, this is what I think you need to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right on. Yeah, there is so much to know. You know, it seems like people just kind of go out and start cutting and, you know, building trail, but there is a lot of I would almost call it science to it, you know. I mean, the Imba Trail Solutions book been thoroughly researched, and you know, its best practices collected over the years. Uh, it seems like a really, really good resource. Yeah, I would agree. Certainly, there are other publications out there, and Imba has put out two more books uh, since that. Their most recent one is Bike Parks, which is an indication of where. Mountain biking and trail building has has progressed the, to this current date. So, yeah, but like you said, uh, a book is only going to take you so far. There's some great illustrations and descriptions of how to build, you know, turns in that book, but it doesn't tell you where to put it and what alignment and many other details that for mountain biking make a huge difference in the way uh, a turn works within a trail system. And I'll use that word flow. <laughs> yeah, it's a good word. It's an important word when we're talking about trail building for sure. So I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you a question that I think a lot of people maybe have about mountain bike trails and building new trails. Why does it take so long for new trails to get built? Yeah. So I think when you're dealing with building trails on public lands, if you're not organized and already have a relationship with that particular agency, whether it's federal, state, or local, you know, you're going to walk in the door, kind of cold call on somebody and expect a response uh, in a short amount of time. That's probably rare unless that particular agency has already been involved in those kind of activities and are actually looking to continue that. So at the front end, uh, one of the first things that has to happen is permission, and that can be a lengthy process. And uh, when you do get permission and you get down the road to the point of, okay, we're in the woods and we're establishing in a route based on your plans. If it's safe in the national forest, they're going to have to study that route. They're going to have to do an environmental assessment. They may have to do an archaeological study. Um, and these things, the federal agencies are bound by law to do. And, uh, you know, if they're looking for a certain plant that's only, uh, they can only find in the spring and you submit your proposal in the summer, guess what? It's, you're going to have to wait till the next spring before they can do that survey. Wow. So once all the assessments have been done and things like that, then what's sort of the next step in getting a trail put on the ground? And, you know, how do we get to the ribbon cutting from there? Yeah. So hopefully during that period of waiting for all the uh, approvals and signatures, you've been uh, raising funds if you didn't already have that. And as well as uh, building your volunteer base. Again, I said something about 
that you need to be organized. Agencies don't work with individuals to create trail systems on public lands. It's just not possible. So to reference the IMBA book, they have a section called 11 Essential uh, Steps for Basically Building a Trail System. Wow, there are 11 steps? <laughs> yeah, there are. Number eight is actually developing that that corridor, I called, or a route through the woods that you want to build on and then waiting for the approval. Nine, so once you get the approval, then you really have to develop a construction plan. And they may not seem like uh, maybe a major difference, but if you try to build a a good flowy mountain bike trail system based off a a corridor flag line, which is just a rough location, and actually build based on that without really um, reviewing that and using a different method, which I, which we use pin flags to absolutely locate the trail precisely where you want it before volunteers come in and build it. You're not going to get the best product, um, and we've seen that before. So, yeah, then you build the trail, and uh, when you're building trails by hand, you can do a lot of great work, but it is hard work. Depending on your topography and your you know, steepness of your hills, you're going to be excavating a lot of dirt. And um, if you have a monthly or bi-monthly trail work day and you get maybe uh, 40 people out there, you'll get a lot done. But generally, you're going to be spending um, possibly a year or more uh, if you're talking about several miles of trail. Options to shortcut that are obviously ma- machine-built trails, bringing in professionals, entering into hybrid contracts with those guys where um, you can lower the cost and still get the trail built faster. And I could go into more stuff on that, but uh, hopefully that kind of an- answers your question. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely so many parts. I mean, I didn't realize there were 11 steps and we're talking about construction isn't until what, eight or nine in the process. I mean, there's so many things it seems like can go wrong. What percentage of projects that you've been involved in actually make it all the way through? I mean, I imagine there are a lot of projects where somebody has an idea and it gets through the first few phases and then, you know, doesn't work out for whatever reason. Is that pretty common for projects to get sort of sidetracked and ultimately don't work out? I think barring any problems with the environmental assessment or the or an archaeological study, usually it's just a matter of funding and resources, meaning, uh, you know, volunteer labor and or if you are working with a, a professional contractor, you know, their their timeline. I can give you an example at the Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area. Most folks in the Atlanta area are familiar with Soap Creek. I've ridden there uh, since my first mountain bike riding in the late 80s. And the trail system that is there now took over 10 years to get done. And this is because many obstacles in the way with what the park service is, is required to do and protect on that land as far as the uh, cultural resources and archaeological sites that most people don't know about. And when you try to find a new route, you run into them. And it really, uh, that's a piece of property that um, where the trails are now are some of the few places they can actually exist. Yeah, it seems like 
the bottom line is to get a trail done, you need to have someone or a group of people who is really persistent and is dedicated to the process and making sure that it goes through to completion. I mean, if that took 10 years, how many different people were involved in that or what, you know, was there even a leader? Was there someone who was kind of spearheading that and uh, organizing it or is it, yeah, how does that even work? Sure. It was a number of leaders. Um, and that was, uh, you know, going back to when in the early days, Sorba was sort of an Atlanta based mountain bike organization with a few chapters around in Georgia. And then as it progressed into the 2000s, Atlanta became actually one of the chapters as, as that organization continued to grow. So those presidents and uh, I could list a number of them over time, continued to take meetings and, uh, you know, to try to rally the troops, so to speak, over those times. Because I know a lot of people uh, that were involved back then lost interest just because it, it, it never happened. But because the organization stayed focused and that was, you know, a priority for year after year after year, the each leader took that on. And currently the president, Brett Davison, uh, has done, you know, all kinds of meetings and, you know, done the things that the land managers see that uh, they want with a partnership with, you know, a volunteer group. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of little details with, especially with federal lands. States have little different guidelines. And then when you get down to counties and cities, even, and even another difference, which, um, we could talk about the city of Atlanta's tree ordinance, but that might be a whole nother podcast. Yeah. All the red tape to me is always amazing. And, and like you said, the number of meetings that are required and things, I mean, I would, I would guess that in a lot of these projects, more time is spent in meetings than in actually getting out and, you know, building trail and doing the work. So speaking of this project, you know, you said it took 10 years. Is that one of the longest projects that you're aware of? Or are there others that drag on for that long before trail is actually opened up to people? Yeah, that's probably one of the longer ones I can think of. I live up in Woodstock, Georgia. And, uh, when the whole idea of trying to develop trails around Lake Alatoona came up, it was probably the one of the better situations you can imagine. People know this trail system, of course, is Blankets Creek today. But uh, the Army Corps, the director at the time, was looking to bring some, si- some sort of uh, low-impact recreation into some of the parts of the lake at that time. The president of Sorba at that time was Alex Nutt, and um, in a very short amount of time, he got permission to go ahead and uh, flag proposed routes on that property. And within a short amount of time, those routes were approved. And um, we got to begin building that trail in what I would say a very short amount of time compared to... What are we talking, like a year? Less than a year? As I recall, the time between when we flagged those routes and built it was about a year, I think. And once that first work day happened, uh, the excitement uh, just grew from there because the first work day there w- uh, was before there was even a chapter in Woodstock. In fact, the lead uh, chapter was Rambo. They were the closest ones, oh. and they they uh, led that effort. But very, very shortly after that, the, the folks living near there that were involved realized that uh, they needed to organize their own chapter for this project and this trail system because the 
there was uh, three loops planned in the in the original uh, plan out there, and uh, you know that all exists plus more now. Yeah, Blankets Creek is is really a huge asset here in the metro area. Definitely uh, the most popular trail system in the area. So that's pretty awesome to see how that worked out in the end. So we talked a little earlier about the different methods for building trails. You mentioned hand-built trails versus machine-built. What are some of the pros and cons to using machines to build trails versus having people do it by hand? Sure. So with the machinery that is out there these days, you can obviously create a trail system in a much shorter time frame, and you can do a lot more with, I guess you might refer to it as the sculpting of the product. If you want in-sloped berm turns, if you want rollers, if you want all these kind of flow features that have become popular with a machine, you can definitely do it. But the key on any uh, machine-built trail is a skill of the operator because you can do a lot of great work or a lot of you could create a big problem in a short amount of time with a machine compared to, you know, hand-built trails, which have a different kind of look when they're first built because the construction impact is smaller. But most machine-built trails after, I would say, about three to five years start to, and sooner in some areas, start to look less machine built and more like the hand built, depending on the, the, you know, the techniques and the best practices by the, the contractor. So, um, at, you know, this point, I would never, uh, say you should have a fully built machine built trail system because I don't think that gives you a good variety. I just did a little project, um, recently where probably about 300 feet of the trail was on a very rocky bluff and we didn't even want to put a machine in there. So we built that by hand. And there was a few places too where we went in between some trees, uh, on each side. And we also built those sections by hand because we didn't want to get into the roots with the machinery. Well, would you say, can you get a similar end product though after three to five years using machine versus hand built? Or are you still going to be able to tell that there is a difference between how the trails were constructed? Yeah, I, I feel that you can. And in fact, uh, some of the efforts uh, of of uh, professional trail builders recently uh, have been to uh, to make machine built trails look more like hand built trails, and uh, the there's several uh, examples that I have not had yet had a chance to check out. Um, where those techniques have been used, but maybe one day I'll get to go out to those places I've heard about. Yeah, I've definitely heard about, and you mentioned it too earlier, I think about sort of a hybrid approach where maybe you have machines come in and then uh, you have volunteers come in after them and do some handwork to really add some of the character back into the trail, you know, adding rock work or things like that. So yeah, it definitely seems like trail building is progressing as well, whereas maybe five, 10 years ago when machine building sort of took off and everything was turning into a flow trail, you know, it seemed like we were real machine heavy and maybe now we've added back some of that nuance with the hand building as well. You're right. I don't know if you uh, remember when they opened the trails down um, in the Augusta area, FATS, the Forks area trail system. That was a whole new thing down there. And um, 
they had some interesting concepts. Uh, instead of having separate loops for different uh, difficulty levels, they said, let's let's build a trail that everybody can ride. But when we go through these drainages and, and, and uh, other things that we do on the trail, let's uh, have a low and a high side, like all the drainages, the way they set it up. The left side was kind of an easy way to go through it. The right side, because they were machine built, they uh, built those up more and uh, skilled people with those skills would go over there and they could, you know, jump or do different things because of that. And that really started a whole new movement. Uh, I know most people that that went down there in the early days said, uh, man, we want to build this trail back, you know, in our trail system. And now more recently, um, for example, the project, the development of trails in Anniston, Alabama at Coldwater, what you see there is the use of alternate lines or alt lines in the trails. And that's another way to, instead of having uh, separate trails, you can have a trail, say, at a blue, you know, inter- intermediate type of rating uh, with more advanced lines for progression. You could do it on an easy trail, too, as well. So people who are riding that as their skills improve, they can take those alternate lines uh, or challenge themselves during the rides. Yeah, that's a really cool concept. I never thought of it that way. Like, you know, a lot of trail systems, they do have like a green loop and a blue loop and a black loop, but it's interesting to think that those could all be the same loop and it's just different lines that you take within it. So it's kind of a, a multi, multi-difficulty multi trail uh, that's kind of co-habitating. Yeah, what I heard from uh, the guys that were involved with FATS was the you know, the concept of riding with your, your family and you used to have to split up, you know, because not everybody right. was at the same skill level. But here you could ride together and on the same trail have different experiences. Yeah, that's a really awesome idea. So speaking of sort of designing trails with the end users in mind, what are some of the trade-offs that need to be balanced when building new trails? We mentioned rider abilities. You know, you don't want to make trails that are too difficult for people to ride. And you also don't want to make them too easy because people are going to get bored with that. But what, what other trade-offs are there? What about like sustainability or maintenance considerations? Yeah, so obviously from my standpoint, the sustainability of a trail is key. And that's sort of the science of trail building and trail design. And in, in the Imba Trail Solutions book, I actually even know the page number, um, <laughs> but there's a guideline for um, how steep the trail should be, how wide it should be, as well as what the surface of the trail should be like, you know, how many obstacles, uh, unavoidable obstacles, and how, how much above the grade of the trail they are based on what you want to rate that trail, as, you know, as far as difficulty. And I use those uh, when I lay out trail. Uh, I measure the grade with a tool called a clinometer because when you're out in the woods on on slopes that are coming in at all different angles. It's real difficult to sometimes really figure it out. Your brain tries to, but it gets tricked sometimes. But with a, with a clinometer, you can, you can see that and, uh, stay closer to the, those specifications. That's, that's for the sustainability too. But then the art side of trail building is when you're on the landscape and you're walking through there is looking at certain features rocks, trees, just within the landscape that you want the trail to be near, as well as placing it 
on the hillside to work with the natural forces. And the number one issue that I think anybody that's ever done trail maintenance is familiar with is what water does to our trails when it comes down the hill. Uh, and if it doesn't pass over our trail and keep going, if it gets on our trail and starts running down it, we start to have major erosion. And uh, so there's a balance there between that you know, kind of what you're trying to do with the difficulty and the challenge of the trail. And that uh, goes to soil types and terrain. Um, and we always say, you know, rock is 100% sustainable. So if you're looking for something at maximum grade and you've got a lot of rock, well, that's a great location. But if you don't, you know, then you have to adjust to those soil types. In North Georgia, we're mostly clay-based soils and those can hold pretty good grades if you're in florida with sandy soils it's a little more difficult to get a lot of grade but there's ways around that that they've learned and uh yeah so i think hopefully that addresses you know that question pretty well yeah i know every time i've done trail work it seems like i'm getting a lesson in hydrology you know where everything you do is is focused around water. You know, what's the water going to do? Is it going to pool up here? How are we going to get it off the trail? And we talked about this in our episode about the environmental impacts of mountain biking and how, you know, a lot of people might think that when you're talking about erosion specifically, that it's the bikes that are causing erosion. But really, the biggest force seems to be the water. And, you know, if you can get that trail design right the first time, then you're not going to get erosion no matter how many bikes go through. And even if a few people skid, you know, it's still going to hold up better than a trail that's not designed with, you know, water erosion in mind. What about land managers? Do they give you a lot of specific guidance? I mean, I guess it varies depending on who you're working with, but uh, do they place any sort of constraints on how the trails can be designed and built? Yeah, it's a good question. It does vary with the land manager. If you're talking about the, the, the forest service, they, they have, uh, and probably some of the most detailed publications and documentation I've seen on trail building as far as specifications by user type. And, uh, we tend to think about shared use trails or multi-use trails in, in our design, mostly for hiking and biking or trail running. But if you're going to, you know, bring, uh, horses onto a trail, that's a whole nother specification you've got to look at all the way down to, you know, working in, uh, county and city parks where, because they really don't, they're not in the trail business. They have no, no idea what it should be necessarily. They might default to just building codes in that area. For example, soil and erosion, you know, code that says if you're going, and this has actually been a challenge in some places where if you're going to build a five mile trail that's two feet wide, the local county guy before you build it will just kind of multiply those numbers and say, Hey, you're, you're exposing more than an acre of ground. You have to you know, have a soil uh, erosion control plan. And uh, then we try to work with them and explain the way we really build a trail. We don't open that entire, you know, we don't right. cut that all together and not finish it. And sometimes we can work around those issues. Other times uh, we have to um, just follow what the county or state regulations are there. So it varies a lot. What about, are there do you ever run into like liability concerns from land managers? Do they ever say, say walk a trail and say this, this feature is too dangerous or, you know, you can't build jumps or certain things that are maybe based more on that? 
usually those kind of things are uh, are going to come up in your proposal. And if if not, you know, your construction plan and, uh, you're, you know, you're generally working uh, with in your construction plan with diagrams. If you're going beyond just your standard cross country trail, what features you're building? And at that point, they're going to object or, or approve those kind of things. You generally don't want to surprise your land manager at the end of your construction with something you never told them you were going to do just because in the middle of building you thought this would be cool, that's probably not going to go good for your long-term relationship with them. What about resources? So it seems like a lot of trail projects are going to be constrained either by funding or getting volunteers involved. How does that play into the types of trails that get built? Yeah, I think... um, it limits the opportunities um, because uh, when I used to work on the staff for Imbasorba in the in the southeast in the south southern region as we called it, we would hear about opportunities. But if if there wasn't a chapter in that area, it was going to be a challenge to make that thing happen. Uh, make that happen, and it, it it started to like Imba in the in the early days. You know, uh, I would say. They were all about teaching people how to build trail, but after 10 years uh, or more of, of doing that, they realized that also if they didn't have a strong organization in that area to provide the resources when those opportunities came along, that that was also an issue that needed to be addressed. And that's what I think IMBA and, and SORBA and other large mountain bike organizations have focused on more so uh, probably in the past five to ten years because uh, there's been a they put a lot of effort into teaching trail building although I'd say that never ends there's you know there's educational opportunities all the time because we have new people coming into the sport and new people that 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 come to work days and you can usually get a good clinic at 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 most trail work day if you you know arrive and have never done it. They provide tools. They provide uh, the, the knowledge of how to do those things. So a lot of mountain bikers, particularly new mountain bikers to the sport, focus a lot on new trail building and get really excited about new trails. But maintaining our existing trails seems like it's just as important. How many volunteer hours would you say are typically spent building new trails versus maintaining existing ones? Yeah, I used to be involved uh, with the sort of processing of all those volunteer hours for Sorba in the southeast, but uh, it wasn't broken out into construction versus maintenance. But what I can tell you, Sorba has been very successful. If you look at what's happened in the past 10 years with, with trail development in the southeast, and that success has kind of created some situations with the ability to maintain all of the trail that a particular chapter has in their kind of area. So I think that, um, and I've had this conversation just, just the other day, it's a challenge sometimes to get people excited about maintaining their trails. Yeah. But if you just even start to talk about a new trail, they're interested. <laughs> so there's this, there's this thing that we need to do a better job maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know, um, making trail maintenance more sexy, more appealing, more. But, you know, a lot of groups do great jobs in rewarding their volunteers on an annual basis, uh, recognizing them, whether it's on maintenance or construction, 
But, you, you know, when you get up to about 30 miles or so of trail and you're doing one work day a month, it's tough to really get everything done. And uh, from my perspective, I think it's uh, the time to look for outside help to maybe get a professional trail builder in periodically to do mechanized trail maintenance with the big stuff that's just gotten too out of control, possibly, to, to be able to do by hand. Yeah, this reminds me sort of of my kids, right? They've got like all these toys, like their rooms are just full of toys. And you take some of them away and you put them in the attic and, you know, they forget about them. And then you bring them down and they're like, oh, wow, that I love that toy. I haven't seen that toy forever. It sort of reminds me of trails where we have all these trails and, you know, there's the trail system that people are riding a lot and is being well-maintained while others kind of fall off on the on the wayside and get overgrown a little bit and neglected. Um, but then, yeah, maybe we need to bring those trails back and people will be excited about those again. We kind of rotate around which ones we have. I mean, what is there, do you think there's an ideal ratio of trails or an, or an ideal number of miles of trails that a club can sustain based on uh, sort of their active members? There probably is, uh, and I don't know what exactly that number is, but I've seen that when when it gets over 30, it starts to get really difficult just within, like I said, the normal monthly uh, workday to get it done. But I would never say we have enough trails. That I would never answer, answer the question, do we want more trails with a no? We always want more trails because the solution is that we'll get more volunteers and more people engaged in the sport. So, yeah, I think uh, I was just talking to some uh, folks over in Huntsville, Alabama. I don't know if you've ever been to Montesano State Park. No, I want to. That is a uh, amazing piece of property. If you like riding on rock, hmm. they have so much rock over there. And uh, yes, and one of their challenges there is to uh, keep the excitement up about, you know, maintaining a, a very large trail system, but they want to develop more trail as well. So, uh, you know. Right. Yeah, that's hard. What do they do? Should they should they get Montesano back or should they start building new trails? I mean, it reminds me of Bull Mountain, say, 10 years ago when you know, this is an Imba Epic, great trail system in the North Georgia mountains. One of the first that you would hit, you know, if you're driving north from Atlanta. And for a long time, it, it kind of was neglected. You know, the trails were not in good shape and, you know, it took a real concerted effort and money and volunteer hours to really get it back to a place that people wanted to ride. I mean, is that a cycle? Is that kind of a normal cycle you think that we'll see where trails kind of ebb and flow? based on the attention that the clubs are able to give to them? It sure can. I again saw that kind of all occur due to kind of the success of trail building in the metro Atlanta area because prior to the the trail systems we have now, there, that was where everyone really went on the weekends. But as things developed closer in, their attentions were focused on those trail developments and then maintaining those trails. And, uh, yeah, that, that trail system kind of got forgotten about or just, you know, the chapters said, Hey, we got to do this. We've made commitments here. And, uh, it was a struggle to find, cause in that general area, there aren't many people that live close to that trail. Like in our, you know, if you look at the model for chapters in more metropolitan areas or urban areas, um, where you got the base, you know, that you could, 
work with. Luckily, that's finally, I think, been solved, and the mountain bikers are, are re-engaged with that trail system. There were there were some really good improvements, upgrades done up there to make that trail system more sustainable. And from my perspective, all those improvements made that trail much more enjoyable and a lot more fun to ride. Yeah, definitely. You're a professional trail builder. What are your favorite types of trails or trail features to build? Oh, to build. Okay, I thought you were going to say ride. I was already. Well, I want to know that too. I mean, how does that play into it too? I mean, is it? Do you enjoy building the things you like to ride, or or is it kind of a separate thing? Is riding separate from building for you? From building's perspective, you know, I would build the trail to what the customer wants. You know, and um, where I am with my kind of experience or expertise is not where I want it to be yet. So I enjoy riding flow trails. But I'm still learning that skill. I've worked with some other trail builders that are great doing it. I live in Woodstock where we um, have Rope Mill also, which uh, has the latest trail system there was built by Trail Dynamics, uh, Ed Sutton and crew, who did an awesome job. And uh, But they also said during construction that this is like the perfect soil type and the perfect gradients as mm. far as side slopes. So they were loving it as well to create that trail system over there called the mill at Rope Mill. But yeah, when you get a contract, whether like I just built one, it was a hiking uh, trail. And so that's, you know, what I built it for. So there's, you know, when you're building a hiking trail, the turns don't have to be set up like they would for to make a bicycle go around it properly. So yeah, that's kind of how I do it. Yeah, when you're out there building too, do you do you usually have a bike with you if you're building a bike trail so you can, you know, test stuff out? Sure, that that's I mean, yeah, you have to when you get get it built to that stage, but before you even uh start digging in the dirt, when you change your corridor flag line to a pin flag line, in other words, absolutely locate the the trail on the ground where you want it, you can then run that section of trail, uh, the, that turn, uh, to feel, you know, how it's going to work. And that will give you a, a pretty good idea of what it's going to feel like on a bike. Um, certainly uh, not exactly. And once you do build it, then you can fine tune a little more. But if you just build turns without even trying to run them, your chances of getting it right are much, much lower. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That sounds like the fun part of trail building to me, for sure. So what are some of the key tools of the trade that you use? Let's start with hand tools. What what do people need to build mountain bike trails? Yeah, well, it starts off, you know, if we're talking about the design with the good topo map of the area and you got to have, when you get in the woods, a clinometer, measure grades, some flagging tape, and maybe just um, about three people is is a good number because you need uh, two people for sighting with the clinometer, and then a third person can be scouting. The more you know about that property, the better. Uh, and if you don't know that property and you don't have what I call local knowledge for someone that has lived around there and can tell you all the great places and stuff like that, that that the trail should go to. You just have to discover it yourself, and that can take time. We, we have a term called control points, which is 
can be positive and negative, and these are places that we want the trail to be or we have to avoid. And usually the negative ones are, are identified by the land manager for safety or environmental impact, whatever that is. And, uh, yeah, so to continue that as far as trail building, when you get past that stage and you're actually building the trail, the first thing is you're digging out the tread. You're creating what we call a bench cut uh, surface, and that's uh, there's a few tools that in the early days we basically use the Pulaski for digging and a McLeod for raking the the dirt out. Uh, we also used to use fire rakes a lot, and these are all just fire uh, wildland fire fighting mm-hmm. tools that will work. But um, since then, there's been some companies that have developed some great tools. I really like the uh, tools that Rogue makes. Yeah, I've seen some of their stuff. It looks really nice. Oh yeah, it's it's professionally made, it's high quality. You know, you you can't really get these tools at your local hardware store. They are kind of specialized a bit. You can build tools with with those other things too, but if you're really doing it um if you're building trail 5 days a week professionally and you're you're going to need some hand tools, you're not going to be able to do it all by machine. So, I like those I actually, when you're when you're getting into uh, and you're building an in-slope berm turn, once the machine pulls away, that soil has to have a little more handwork. And uh, so there's a couple different rakes. There's um, I use the McLeod for tamping because it's just lighter to carry out in the woods. But I've seen people carry you know real tampers out there. <laughs> and um, yeah, there, there's uh, another tool that's an interesting one uh, I, I picked up a while ago. It's for gardening. There's a couple different names for it, but it's uh, the one I like. It's called the Action Hoe. <laughs> and it basically, when you get to the point where you're, if you're trying to get stuff really smoothed out and buff for that style, it just takes all the little edges off very easily. And it's a really inexpensive tool. And those are sold at your regular like hardware stores and garden outlets. <laughs> <laughs> cool. How many, I mean, how many hand tools would you say you need to use on a trail build? I mean, how many, what's your collection like? Yeah. So I have the standard. Pulaski, McLeod, and then I have a hard rake, a leaf rake. Because when you start out, uh, all the leaf litter or pine straw, whatever's on the ground, you're going to rake that uphill. Now, um, I have also used a backpack leaf blower for that in kind of more of the professional side. But if you got a bunch of volunteers running those, it's kind of not the best environment. It's huge dust clouds, so it's yeah, it's more the you know non motorized stuff. Yeah, and uh, I'm probably leaving out something. But. I mean, what do you use to like cut? You use saws and oh, pr- right. pruners and that okay. kind of thing. Yeah, various size loppers, some hand saws, and so we try to avoid removing established trees. In fact, part of the uh, experience to me when you're on a trail is the proximity to trees. Mm-hmm. We use trees, you know, established trees to um, to what I call anchor a trail into the hillside. In other words, you go up and around them. Uh, once you've done that, the trail's not going to move down the hill. Plus, the roots are deeper in the ground uphill of a big tree. But uh, occasionally, there are trees in the corridor of the trail that you have to chainsaw and then um, we don't want to leave the root ball in the trail so we have a technique we call grubbing out which is basically just digging out the entire root ball uh, and getting that out of the trail during construction so it doesn't keep showing up uh, in the future during maintenance Uh, those are no fun to deal with 
Yeah. So when you were talking about raking the trail and blowing leaves off the trail, that reminded me of a question that I always have for trail builders, uh, which is, what do you do with leaves and leaf litter in the winter time? Do you like to like to keep the trail clear? Is that going to keep it dry, or uh, is leaving that stuff on there better in terms of maintenance? Well, I'm going to have to say it depends. Okay. And but I'll talk about both sides of that because I've seen what the results have been. For example, at Blankets Creek several years ago, because of the popularity of that system and the demand on it, in the winter um, when the leaves come down, they usually clear most of the trails. And that's because um, of the freeze-thaw cycle we have down here uh, a lot in the winter. And when you have the freeze-thaw, when it thaws out, it's worse than after a rain. And if you've got the leaves off, Generally, and you get sun and and some wind, that trail is going to dry out faster. And they they kind of document it since um, I don't know if they wrote a paper, but they definitely saw the results mm-hmm. of that. The other side of that, though, um, and it's been documented. I think just last year, I saw some information on it. Was the actual leaves and pine straw or whatever it is on the trail can insulate the trail and actually minimize the kind of freeze thaw mm-hmm. problem. So, I would say. It's different for urban trails that are high uses versus backcountry trails uh, on how you manage that. And maybe even within a trail system, uh, you don't keep the leaves off of all the loops, you know. So uh, I would say that um, there's not a, a definite answer on that. That's why I said it depends. Interesting. Yeah, that's definitely something that seems to be up for debate. And I guess there's a reason for that because there is no single answer to it. So getting back to the tools of the trade, what are some of the machines that are involved in building a trail? What are some of the common ones that are used? Sure. Um, so really the two main machines that um, are being used are uh, what's referred to as a skid steer, a mini skid steer. These are all miniature machines kind of designed for landscaping. So the skid steer is the, you know, um, something that can have a bucket on it or a blade. Uh, I prefer the blade, which basically that's a machine that's going to push dirt. Now it can dig it up a little bit, but not that great. So the better digging, uh, machine is an excavator. And we're talking about mini excavators. And the reason we're using these small machines is we, we want the tread to be as narrow as possible. Also, they have less impact. You know, if you look at the, you know, w- as far as the weight of the machine uh, and the, the impact running it over anything going in and out to access your trail. Yeah. So the excavator, the excavator can do all kinds of jobs, primarily digging, but uh, it doesn't do the best job at pushing the dirt around. So uh, most trail builders are going to use both of those. And there's a third one that can make the trail building even faster, and those are referred to as trail dozers. So these are not full-on bulldozers, but um, these are heavy metal tracked bladed machines that um, go out in front and they do the rough cut and usually followed behind by an excavator and the excavator is going to create the back slope of the trail if you're familiar with that is Mm. and work with 
do the drainages and obviously build all the berm turns, the slope, you know, and get those things. And then the, behind that would be a, a skid steer to punch out the drains because you really can't get off the, tra- you know, get off the trail much with the excavator and do that. So the, the third machine would be that. And then, um, and then you do have, uh, and then there's still going to be some handwork and that can be done by the contractor or it can be done by the volunteer group. And that handwork is basically naturalizing the construction zones because you don't want to leave all this exposed soil that the machines tend to, uh, to um, leave behind and you want to get that covered up as soon as possible so that the area can begin to kind of re-naturalize mm-hmm. and it just defines where the trail is and much more aesthetically pleasing too. Yeah. So obviously you've spent a long time and have gained a lot of experience building trails over time and we can't convey all the information that people need to know through this podcast. But for people who are interested and, you know, this seems like something that they might want to get involved in, what are sort of the first steps for getting involved and for starting to learn how to build trails? Sure. So I would seek out your local trail volunteer group. I mostly know Sorba here in the south, there's a lot of chapters and they're all maintaining trail systems in their local communities and uh, they could use your help, whether it's your support in time or money by joining that organization. And as far as books, uh, you know, I would get a hold of the Imba Trail Solution book. Uh, it's a little old, uh, but all the stuff I think is still good information. Or if you want to get all the books that they've published, and then if you're looking for educational opportunities, there are some out there. I continue to teach a, uh, a two-day trail crew leader class. Got one scheduled at the end of the month up in Murphy, North Carolina. I'm working with the um, Southern Appalachian Bicycle Association, or SABA. And these are the guys that take care of Jackrabbit Mountain, if you've ever heard of that trail system. Oh, yeah, that's a great, great trail system. Yeah. And they've been developing some more trails, if you hadn't heard. Um, so I'll be up there. There's a plan uh, hadn't been finalized for a trail crew leader class probably in February of next year. For It'll be for Sorb Atlanta and all you know Metro Atlanta folks uh, held at the Chattahoochee River National Rec Area. And um, I also do a one-day kind of sustainable trails workshop for groups that's just a little more kind of a less information, a little more uh, just hands-on. I kind of modeled it after the Imba Trail Care Crew presentation, their one-day kind of program. Yeah, that's great. We were just talking beforehand, too, and Walt was telling me about some of the classes that he does and the educational opportunities that uh, he brings to different people. And yeah, I mentioned how it sounds, it's a lot like the Trail Care Crew, which isn't happening anymore. So definitely take advantage of of Walt and have him come out and do for you what the trail care crew used to do. But yeah, so thank you, Walt, for joining us for this episode. If you'd like to learn more about trail building or to get in touch with Walt, uh, you can search for Be Ready Trails on Facebook and on the internet. And then also there's Lots of great resources on Imba's website uh, and single tracks as well. We've got some articles about trail building and advocacy and all that kind of stuff. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.